Luke chapter 9. Last week we were on the, the Mount of Transfiguration and it was glorious and inspiring and Jesus was big and awesome and it can get really exciting. And I love those big moments. And this week we're getting some hard lessons on the road from Jesus as he begins a journey with his disciples. So we're going to hopefully finish out chapter 9 of Luke this week. Um, And we might go somewhere different for a week or two after this. We'll see how things go. Let me read from verses 43, about halfway through verse 43 to verse 45, just to get us started. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully. Now, do you remember what God said on the Mount of Transfiguration, the instruction that he gave? He said, this is my son uh, whom I have chosen. And the command, there was one command, listen to him. Right? And straight away after dealing with the, the demon-possessed boy at the bottom of the mountain, um, Jesus gets his disciples and he says, listen carefully, listen carefully. To what I'm about to tell you, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, we're going to go on and finish the chapter. But let's just um, set the scene here for what's going on at this part of Luke. Because after a long season of popularity and miracles and feeding the 5,000 and healing people and teaching people and the crowds following Jesus, it's starting to ramp up a bit. The teaching is going to get more demanding. The opposition is going to increase. He's going to be repeatedly telling his disciples what he told them here, that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And they don't quite understand it. But as we move on through Luke, there is a shift at the end of chapter 9 and things get a bit trickier. In fact, one of the key verses that that splits the whole gospel of Luke is chapter 9 verse 51. Where it says, as the time approached, Jesus, or a time approached from to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is where a journey begins. And in the Gospel of Luke, which is 24 chapters long, from now until the end, from chapter 9 until the end, it's all journey. It's all about that road to Jerusalem, to the cross. And when Jesus said, or when Luke says that Jesus set out for Jerusalem, your Bible might say he set his face against Jerusalem. It's it's quoting from Isaiah in the Old Testament where Isaiah says in 50 and verse 7, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint. It is a picture of absolute, utter determination. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him. This road that he is going on, and as always, you need to hold this because we're going to come back to this towards the end. That Jesus himself has a road out in front of him and he is determined that he's going to walk it. 
He's determined that he's going to finish the job, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to follow the will of the Father, that nothing's going to distract him and nothing's going to hold him back. Hence this, this phrase, I have set my face like flint or I have steeled myself. Focus on where he is going. And it starts this, this journey section in Luke Travel in the ancient world was rare. People did not go sort of global transatlantic. They did not go on holidays. The only place they traveled was up to Jerusalem for the feasts three times a year. That was their their traveling. And on those journeys to Jerusalem, they would talk about the Exodus in the Old Testament. They would sing a bunch of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And they would tell stories to pass the time along the way. And Jesus is now starting a similar journey. And as we saw last week, sort of for the Bible boffins among you, there is little Exodus imagery woven in here. Just like there was on the mountain last week, there is here as well. It seems very... Sort of innocuous little verse where it says in verse 52 of Luke 9, he sent messengers ahead of him. Jesus sent this delegation to go to Samaria. We'll get there in a few minutes. But he sent messengers ahead of him. In Greek, the word for messengers is the same as the word for angels. It's just exactly the same word. And in Exodus 23, God says, I'm sending an angel ahead of you. And then in Malachi 3, God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me and the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. We're getting this theme again that what Jesus is doing, he's not just going to the cross to just die for sin so that we can go to heaven when we die and float around in the clouds and play harps and wear nappies like in all the pictures. That's not what he's doing. He is carrying out a new exodus. The exodus in the Old Testament from the slavery in Egypt, the bondage under Pharaoh, Jesus is carrying out an exodus from slavery to sin, whatever that may look like in different people's lives. Jesus is carrying out a new exodus and setting people free. And that's just woven into the language here that Luke uses. So traveling and going on a journey is something that's frequently used in the New Testament to describe the Christian life. You're not sitting still. You're not faffing around for a few decades, killing time, waiting for the lights to go out so you can go to heaven. There is a journey. There is a progression. Okay, I love evangelicalism. I love uh, people presenting the gospel and inviting people to be saved and to respond to that. I love that. But sometimes that can give you the idea that once you've done that one time in your life, that you just sit around for ages and do nothing. But Jesus and the New Testament writers talk about journey, progression, movement, growth. And uh, in this, towards the end of this passage, he's going to talk about discipleship. And he, he's, he's wary about people who get all excited and over-exuberant. Sometimes when some cool stuff happens in church or somebody just has a bit of, they get all blessed up. You ever been around people who are just all blessed up and they're all, ooh, you know, they've had a real good time of worship and everything's awesome and they're all excited. This is what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. Jesus has come down the Mount of Transfiguration. He has delivered a boy who was possessed of a demon and the crowds are marveling and Jesus just cautions the disciples and says, listen guys, don't get too excited. Things are going to get tough. The crowd are excited. They've seen a miracle. 
A few chapters earlier, they got a free lunch. They're, they're, they're following Jesus for a reason, and he keeps on just saying to the disciples, it's going to get tough. Things are not going to work out the way this crowd want them to work out. This same crowd are going to turn on me and call for me to be crucified. So he's, he's not that sort of taken in by the, by the popularity. And the disciples just couldn't get it. They couldn't understand why the Messiah had to suffer. Jesus has said to them, this, you know, listen carefully to me. He, he tries to explain things to them and they're going to have to learn some hard lessons. And Jesus, now, if you can get into Jesus' shoes in this passage, you're going to feel serious frustration with the disciples. Because over and over again, it's like a greatest hits of flipping screw-ups in, in these next few verses. Just one dropping of the ball after another over and over again. Jesus has said to them, God has said to them, listen to him. And Jesus has said, listen carefully. And he's just told them that he's going to be betrayed, handed over, delivered in Jerusalem. And what they immediately go on to talk about, immediately after that, is which one of them is the greatest. Okay? So, so he has said, I'm going to die. And they're like, okay. Who do you think is going to be top dog out of the 12? You know, is it going to be Pete? Is it going to be James? Is it going to be John? They're effectively playing discipleship top trumps. Now, if I had more time, I would have made up some cards and put them up here on the screen for you to see them. But in my sort of overactive imagination, I could imagine a card with a picture of Peter on it. And it maybe says, you know, compassion, 53. Zeal, 95. Wisdom for, you know, top trumps and you sit, I, I, you know, picture all that. That's what they're basically doing. They're arguing to see which one of them is going to be the greatest. They're just not listening. They've just heard God <laughs> tell them to listen. They've just heard Jesus, who is God, tell them to listen. And they're not listening and we laugh at them, but we don't listen either a lot of the time. We don't listen. And whenever some great project is launched, like what Jesus is doing here as he goes out on this journey and as he's going to go to Jerusalem and, and as he, he'll die and he'll rise from the dead, he'll pour out his spirit, he'll start the church. Whenever something like that starts, people will soon discover that their own ambition can get mixed up with it. The desire to be a great one. And what Jesus does then is he gets a child, just grabs one. Okay, I'm sure he asked mama or something like, but he took a child, a little child, and he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they've been arguing about. And what Jesus does is he takes someone who has no status. Children were not valued in the ancient world. They had a little more value in Judaism, but in general, they were not valued. They were treated with contempt until they reached a certain age when they were deemed useful. And Jesus takes someone who is deemed to, to be of no value, and he, he sort of puts this child on display, exhibit A, this is what it means to be great. Even little children are great. And I think what Jesus means here is that every single person, because they are made in the image of God, 
has value, immeasurable value. And I challenge myself over recent years how I approach people who have a different outlook than me about whatever controversial issue you may think of. How do I view an individual whose lifestyle is completely different to mine, completely different to what Jesus and what God teaches in his word? How do I view that person? And I've just sort of gradually been retraining myself to think no matter how that person lives, how they act, how they treat me, he or she is made in the image of God and therefore has immeasurable value and deserves my respect and deserves me to represent Jesus to them accurately and not to hate on them because they have a different point of view on something. Jesus takes a child and he says, every human being must have dignity. Every human being must have respect. A guy called Daryl Bach summed this up nicely when he said, there are no unimportant people. I think we have to constantly fight the idea that of, of ranking people, thinking, well, this person's important. I'll give this person quite a bit of my time. And, 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 that per- and then we have people who are just on the fringe and we almost view them as unimportant because of whatever way they live. And Jesus says, no, if you want to be great, be the least. Everyone has value. And whenever the church gets arrogant about rank and greatness, the way the disciples are doing here, that it creates a horrible, toxic, arrogant atmosphere. We talk about sin in the church and we think about big sins and the the usual sort of stuff. But you know what? Some Some of the most grotesque things in the church are attitudes. Arrogance being one of them. And the disciples here are displaying arrogance. And the opposite to that, one of the things that God's been putting on Linda's heart a lot lately, and she's mentioned it quite a few times to me and just to the leadership as we've got together, is is this emphasis on humility. Instead of trying to be the greatest, that instead we develop humble hearts. And we we are humble people. So whenever Christians are more concerned about their reputation, this is the first lesson that these guys are learning on the road, that true greatness and concern over your own reputation means you're not actually listening to him who God has, has told us to listen to. The second thing, and this, you know, it's okay. You know, if you find this funny, I think it's funny, so feel free to smile. Um, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, We tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Now I can picture this. (laughs) I love picturing this stuff. I can see John running up to Jesus and like a child coming to to mommy or daddy. And the child thinks they've done something really good, but they've actually made a horrendous mess. But they're coming up full of of joy. And and John comes up to Jesus and he's out of breath and he's panting. He says, Jesus, we saw this guy. We saw this guy and he was casting out demons, Jesus. And people were being set free and lives were being restored, Jesus. And evil was being pushed back, Jesus. But he's not one of us. So we stopped him, Jesus. Didn't we do well? You know? And he's so proud of himself for stopping this guy from casting out demons. And Jesus the whole time was just like, what? What? Because he's not one of us, we tried to stop him. 
And the second lesson these guys have to learn on the road is that they've got to cooperate in ministry. The 12 of them alone are not going to change the world. There has to be a whole sort of body ministry going on. And again, it's something that we, we can tend to do in church. We can restrict and we can, we can prevent people from doing things. And we can criticize people who are doing things because they have some minor difference of opinion from us. From some tiny thing. You know, it used to be, I don't know whether it still is the case or not, but there used to be pulpits in Northern Ireland. And if you went up behind the pulpit, you'd see a little plaque saying King James Version only in this pulpit. What? (laughs) Does that restrict anyone else from using any other Bible to minister God's word? We have these crazy ideas about people who are not exactly the same as us, not part of our little gang, and therefore we say, you can't do anything in the kingdom. And Jesus rebukes them. Jesus says, no, don't stop him, for whoever's not against you is for you. Again, listen to him. God has just said on the mountain in the cloud, witnessed by Moses and Elijah, listen to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, church needs to cooperate. Church needs to honor those who are doing things instead of criticizing them over some little thing and trying to rubbish what they're up to. Whether it's some minor point of doctrine or whether or not somebody's qualified to do something Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is like a body. And it's all different parts that have all different functions. And you will not get very far today if one part of your body decides to fall out with another part and say, I don't need you. All right? Have fun eating your dinner if your eyes and your hands fall out with each other and decide that they're not of, of value. You know. So that's the second lesson that they learn. And then we've read already Luke 51, and in, in, or 951. In 952, he sent these messengers ahead. But whenever they get to the village, the people there did not welcome him. So he's getting rejected. So you, you have the, the scene on the mountain from last week. The boy delivered from the demon. The crowd's all excited. The disciples excited. And they're moving out into new territory. And they're breaking new ground. And they're bringing the kingdom and bringing the gospel. And they're just buzzing. I can see them again coming over the hill, you know, in slow motion with like Top Gun music playing in the background and their hair blowing in the wind. And it's all just, they're, they're, they're absolutely buzzing. But then instantly they get rejected. First place they plan to go. And they're told, don't come here. We don't want you. Boom. Rejection. And the third hard lesson that these guys are going to learn on the road on this particular part of the journey is how to deal with rejection. Let's look and see how James and John want to deal with rejection. (laughs) They basically say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire and kill them all? (laughs) Come on, these, these are Jesus' top 12. You know, these are his guys who are going to get the job done. And just after we've had, you know, John coming and telling Jesus that he had shut this guy down who was casting demons out of people, James and John haven't learned from that. They come and they say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy this entire village? They're probably still inspired by seeing Elijah on the mountain of the transfiguration last week. For them, it was about a week ago as well. And here's a great quote. 
Um, whenever the disciples do this, Matt Chandler says, these guys give me hope for me. <laughs> you know? Whenever you feel like a dropkick and you feel like you've just messed up again for the umpteenth time, think about these lads. It's okay. These guys give us hope for ourselves. Um, they think that Jesus is going to turn around and say, wow, you love me so much that you would burn up an entire village of people <laughs> out of love for me. You guys are awesome. Light them up. <laughs> and he doesn't say that. He rebukes them. He says, no, that's not what we're doing. You see, not only does he rebuke them, but he calls them to go to another village. There will be a time of judgment, church. This is not it, <laughs> okay? There will be a time when God will deal with every rejection. He will deal with every issue, every trauma, every tragedy. There will be a time of judgment and vindication. Now is not the time. Jesus doesn't want to call down fire in this village. He wants to go to the next village because he's full of grace and he has a kingdom message of love and transformation. And if you don't want it here, we'll take it there. And we don't need to hate you. We don't need to fall out with you. We don't need to, to turn on you. We're going to move on and we're going to bring our message somewhere else. And Peter may have remembered this when he wrote in one of his letters that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, don't be thinking that God is slack about judgment. He's not slack about it. He's full of grace. And he wants people to repent. He wants people to turn to him. He wants to give people new life and make them new creations in the image of God. Judgment will come. And again, it's something that you can see as you look back in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 4, Jesus quotes from Isaiah and he finishes up his quote at this point and talks about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. But Isaiah actually goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of God. But Jesus doesn't quote that last bit. Because for Jesus, he is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to set captives free, to release the oppressed, sight for the blind. There is a day of vengeance of our God, but it's not yet. It's not in the ministry of Jesus, and it's not in the ministry of the church. So learn the lesson that the disciples learned on the road. And when somebody rejects you, just learn to walk away. You don't have to release the fire of God on them. You don't have to release a torrent of abuse and tear them apart. Jesus rebuked them. And he says, let's go to another village. He rebuked them, his disciples, not the Samaritans. He said, no, James and John, we're not going to kill anyone today. We're going to move on and bring this message elsewhere. And we would do well to model this because too many Christians, I think, have only got anger for the world. God's way is lifted up as the only way. We know it is the right way, but it is lifted up and anyone who walks differently deserves our judgment and our anger. And I can remember somebody bringing something up that, that was happening on a Sunday. And they were, a Christian was saying to me about somebody doing something on a Sunday. And wasn't that awful that that person's doing that on a Sunday? And my response was just, person's not a Christian. Don't expect them to act like one. 
Okay, You act like a Christian. You act like a follower of Jesus. But don't force that or superimpose that on someone who is not a follower of Jesus. Let them do what they want. You don't have to judge them. You don't have to be angry with them. Even when Jesus comes to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be rejected at the end of this long journey, he knows he'll be rejected. He gets to Jerusalem and what does he do? He weeps over Jerusalem. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say to the disciples, oh, I've arrived at this dump and I'm going to get betrayed and I'm going to this. No, he weeps over it. When he finds a woman who's caught in the act of adultery, he refuses to condemn her. When he's executed, he prays for those who are carrying it out. His anger was only and always directed at the religious establishment who misrepresented him. But never at people outside of the kingdom who were coming to him in their brokenness. Stephen as well in the book of Acts, while he was being stoned, forgave those who were doing it. He didn't condemn them. And it's a good job that that James and John didn't call fire down this day because as Luke records in his second book, which is called Acts in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit falls in power in this very region and loads of people get born again and filled with the Holy Ghost. It's good that they're still there. If James and John had their way, it would have been incinerated, but it was not. And the last lesson they learn on the road is about discipleship. Now, these are really tough verses. Um, because Jesus says some, some, some firm things here. So let's listen carefully and make sure we, we understand what he's saying. It seems a bit out of place when Jesus offers us salvation as a free gift. And then discipleship itself, which just basically means following Jesus, seems to be so costly. And it is costly. The phrase from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. Salvation is free. Jesus paid it all. But following him comes at a cost. As they were walking along the road on the journey, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, how would you respond to that? How, let's just hide Jesus' response for a minute. How would you respond? How would I respond? Somebody comes into church and says, I'm in. I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. I want to come to this church. I, want to, I just want to do everything. Jesus is awesome. I've just seen him cast the demon out of a boy. And I've seen him feed a multitude. I'm in. We would be like, all right, buddy, sign up right here. <laughs> let's get you in. Let's get you a t-shirt and make sure that you're fully you know, part of this. Jesus doesn't do that. And this again is listen to him. <laughs> what does he do? He, he actually actively appears not to put people off, but to just say to them, slow down, buddy. Slow down. Count the cost. This will come up in Luke again on several occasions, this idea of counting the cost of following Jesus. And I probably have learned from this as well just over the years that if if somebody wants to follow Jesus, my response would be, I want to spend a long time with you. I want to tell you not only about Jesus, I want to tell you about the power of the Holy Spirit to transform your life. And I want to tell you that there's a cost. I don't want you to find out in six months or in three years that there's a cost to following Jesus. I want you to know that it is not an easy road, (laughs) but it's the only way to life. And Jesus says to this guy, foxes of dens, 
birds of nests, the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. He basically says to him, following me might lead you to discomfort. You might lose some stuff. It's not easy. Because in the first century, to follow a rabbi, to follow a, a teacher around, you literally just followed him. You maybe stayed in his house and, and you learned from him and you did a few things with him. But Jesus is a bit more like an Old Testament prophet who goes from place to place. And to follow him means leaving behind what, what is there. And this guy gets told, you just go and think about that. Because I don't have a house, <laughs> Jesus says. I don't have a house. I don't have anywhere to live. I don't have the comfort that you maybe expect. And then a second guy comes, and Jesus says to him this time, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now listen to Jesus' response, because it is stingy. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now that's harsh. Isn't that harsh? It's harsh if you think about it from Northern Irish perspective. Because in Northern Ireland and in many parts of the world, obviously, when somebody passes away, there's probably two or three days between that and a funeral. And there's a lot of grief and there's mourning. And, and we, what we picture here as we read this is that this poor guy, his dad has died maybe the day before. And the funeral is maybe the day after. And he happens to be talking to Jesus and he says, Jesus, let me just take care of this funeral tomorrow and then, then I'm in. That is not what it was like at all. <laughs> you buried a person on the day they died in that culture. There was no in-between time. There was no sort of planning or preparation for funerals as, as we do here. If somebody passed away in the morning, they were buried later that day. Right? Jesus raised a guy from the dead in Luke chapter 7 in a village called Nain. The guy had died earlier that day. Jesus sees the procession and he raises the guy from the dead and returns him to his mother. So it is highly unlikely that this man's father died that day and then he went off to a meeting with Jesus in between the guy dying and burying him on the same day. Do you understand? So whenever, whenever he says to Jesus, let me go and bury my father, I don't think he means my dad's dead, I need to bury him. It is a cultural thing that sons worked for their fathers and sons received the inheritance of their father's estate whenever the father died. And what is more likely here is that this guy is saying to Jesus, I work for my dad, still alive, I work for him. And an honorable thing for a son to do is to bury his father. I'm going to work for my father when my father dies and I bury him and I receive my inheritance and I get all that money or land or whatever. Then, Jesus, I will follow you. Now, that puts a different light on it. He's saying sometime, Jesus, off in the future, I've got this other stuff that I need to sort out first, I need to take care of business. I don't know how long it'll be, it might be a few years, it might be longer, but then after I've done all that and things are comfortable, I will follow you. And that's why Jesus' response, I believe, is pretty sharp. Let the dead bury the dead. Now, dead people can't, you know, can't bury anybody. So it's the spiritually dead is what he's talking about. So that's the second guy who comes. The third guy comes, says, I'll follow you. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus, again, comes out with what seems like a pretty harsh reply. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, if you want to follow Jesus, 
Jesus is not saying here that you abandon all your family connections and never talk to mama again. All right, that is not what he's saying. But what he's saying is whenever someone chooses to follow him, he is first. Nothing else displaces him. Nothing comes ahead of him. He becomes first priority. If you want to follow Jesus, that's something you need to know. His call on your life is the first priority. All other things are beneath that in importance. And for those who have walked with him for a period of time, you will know that when you seek first the kingdom of God, all the other things are taken care of. He says, if you, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Have you ever tried to do something that required a straight line? <laughs> and then when you were finished and you look back and you realized your line wasn't straight. One of my honorable jobs as an assistant coach with the mighty Tandragee Rovers under 11s is to put out cones <laughs> to mark the side of the pitch. And away I go with my handful of cones on a Monday night down the pitch and I, and I lay the cones out about five yards in between each cone and I get to the far end and turn around and look at my line. And sometimes it's not too bad and sometimes it needs serious readjustment and there's another coach at the other end of it laughing his head off because it's sort of you know, bending around all over the place. If you want to do a straight line, whether it's a plow or a lawnmower or laying out cones on the grass, you need to pick out something in front of you and you need to focus on it and you need to fix on it and you need to not be distracted from it. How many times, guys, when you're cutting the grass and you're walking behind the mower and you just, you, the phone buzzes in your pocket and you think, oh, I'll just check that or, or something and then <laughs> just you're everywhere. And Jesus says, if you, if you want to be in this kingdom, you can't look back. You can't get distracted by other things. You've got to stay focused. There's something interesting when you look at what these guys said. The second one and the third one. Let, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then the other one says, but Lord, but let me, go, let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. And if we remove a few words, that's what we get. This concept will kill discipleship. Me first. Me first. That'll kill it. Jesus said earlier in this chapter, and the chapter was far too long to do all at once, but you might remember a few weeks ago in the middle of it, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And if your attitude is a me first attitude, it's not going to happen. And some people get really confused as they, they look at someone who in great exuberance appears to, to start following Jesus, but then doesn't sort of keep going. And they get all confused and start to try and figure it out theologically. There's not a lot of theology in it. Me first is the problem. Me first is the problem. And as long as it's me first, discipleship won't happen. Because the great definition of discipleship is that verse in the middle of Luke 9. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow Jesus, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. It is utterly incompatible with the world's system that just keeps saying, me first. You look after you. There was something on, on the news this week. I can't remember exactly what it was. But it was a quote, I think, from a tennis player, maybe. And it's just being bandied about everywhere in social media. And, just, and it was something along the lines of, you know, you just got to love yourself and you got to look after yourself and take care of yourself. And you got to be number one and don't worry about other people. And just like, ah, oh, no, girl, no. 
No, that's me first. And me first kills discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you don't lead us down a merry path of uh, false expectations, that you are absolutely straight about what it means to follow you. And Lord, I pray you would help us to count the cost. Pray you'd help us to learn these lessons on the road that the disciples learned in this, in this passage, that we would uh, cooperate with others, that we would not get all bent out of shape whenever we see someone else doing great stuff in your kingdom and we start to criticize them. That we would be able to deal with rejection and not have to judge people. That we would count the cost of what it means to follow you, Lord that we would understand what it means to be truly great. We love you, Lord. We ask that as we worship you, that your spirit would move in this place, that you would touch hearts, that you would open hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen.